Again, church, wonderful to see you. Thanks for uh, being here and for following these very odd procedures that are helpful to keep one another safe, like masks and being spread out. So thank you for laying down personal preferences and uh, laboring to love each other well in that regard. Uh, We'll be in Acts today again, so you can turn there. And in just a minute, Eric Naylor is going to come and he will be preaching this morning. Eric uh, has been on staff here for five years and a member, a couple more past that. And uh, he and his, his uh, wife and kids are just such a critical part of this family of believers. Um, Eric leads our uh, collegiate ministries, both international and American, and that's such an important uh, part of the ministries of the church. So we're grateful, brother, for your leadership in that regard. And I know you'll be encouraged through what he will share today. Immediately after this gathering ends, we'll be recording a, a sermon Q&A. So you might pull out your phone, and if you have um, any questions during the sermon that might be about something Eric says or a part of the text that he just wasn't able to focus time on, you can text those questions to 480-359-1916. And uh, kids and teenagers especially, you're going to be a lot faster at that than your parents, so feel free to snag their phone and send in a question if you have one. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you and uh, Eric as he's able to entertain those questions. As he comes now, would you please welcome him and thank him for the time he's put in. Church on Mill, it is a privilege to preach to you this morning. I am particularly grateful for the love that you've shown me and my my girls, my family, these COVID-19 days. We are so thankful to be part of this church. And if you're new today, I am so glad that you're here. While you don't know me and I don't know you, I've prayed that this morning you would be blessed. And if you're not a Christian, I am especially glad that you're listening. May you hear the gospel fully and see King Jesus truly. We'll begin this morning by reading our passage of Acts chapter 12. This is a retelling of actual events, and it is truly so action-packed that it could be the outline for the next Marvel movie. As we read, you will notice that we focus on two main characters. We'll start with King Herod, the bad guy, and then we'll consider Peter the apostle, and then back to King Herod. Let's read Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So... Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
And when they had passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What is the most shocking thing to you from this passage? Is it that God would kill somebody? And with worms, no less? Was it that Peter was uh, rescued so miraculously? Or maybe that one of the 12 original disciples, and not just any, but one of the three in the inner circle with Jesus, James, the brother of John, would be killed? And Luke doesn't even give him a full sentence. In fact, in the original Greek, it is literally only two words. This morning, we will consider these things through one main point and three truths that flow from it. And this main idea that we get from Acts 12 is this. Give glory to the sovereign God who both judges and rescues. Let's consider this first truth, which lacks being subtle. Those that oppose God will die. Ask yourself now, honestly, in the quietness of your soul, ask, do you oppose God? Look with me at the beginning of our passage, verse 1, where we are introduced to Herod the king. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and we saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Herod attacked the Christian church, and that is not an assault on humans only, but also the one true God. 
Pastor Tad really did such a, a great job a few weeks ago explaining when this when he said, if the great nation of France invaded even a small, backwater, forgotten little town in Oklahoma, I believe he was talking about his hometown, France is not only attacking this no-name town of Oklahoma, but is in fact attacking the entirety of the United States of America. And when someone attacks the church of God, they attack the person of God. But Herod did not care at all because he did not fear God. Herod attacked the minorities of Christians under his rule. And when he killed James, verse 3 and 4 tells us that Herod sees this pleases the majority, the Jews, and so he looks for further ways to please them and gain their favor even more. With this in mind, Herod decides to arrest Peter with plans to execute him after Passover. Herod did not care at all about the theological differences of Jews and Christians, but he cared a great deal about pleasing his constituents. I guess crooked politicians have always existed. And like so many politicians, monarchs, and dictators, Herod continued in seeking favor, praise, and eventual godlike glory. And in that final moment, as Herod accepted the praise of being likened to a god, he in the same moment accepted the wrath of God. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What good is it to get the praise of man and also receive the wrath of God? What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? The first truth that we learn from Herod the king is the most obvious. Those that oppose God will die. There is only one throne, there is only one king, and there is only one who deserves glory and praise, and no man or woman has ever deserved it. Only the man who is also God can rightfully claim the glory of God. So today, we take comfort in this truth. The leaders of our world will be judged. The leaders and authorities of this world may strike and kill God's people, but in the end, God will strike them. Presidents, dictators, and monarchs might seem victorious for an hour, but the victory in King Jesus lasts for eternity. As Luke puts it in verse 23 and 24, Herod breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And now 2,000 years later, across an ocean and upon another continent, a Korean-born American preaches to a predominantly non-Jewish and non-Roman audience. The word of God triumphed. Evil men might reign for a moment, but the reign of Jesus will last for all time. Give glory to the sovereign God who both judges and rescues. Let's consider some application from this first truth. If we truly believe in a sovereign God who will strike down all that oppose him, what should our response be when believers are attacked? When Christian liberties are taken away? When even our brothers and sisters are murdered in the streets unjustly and without repercussion? What is the Christian response? the biblical response. I believe Acts 12 tells us it is not less than prayer. Look and read with me verse 5. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. More important than legislative reform, more urgent than immediate justice, more necessary than protesting in the streets is prayer. And I don't mean trite rhymes at the dinner table or 10-second pleas before going to bed, but earnest, sincere, tearful, getting in a room, everybody together, all night, prayer. And why? Because an attack against God's people is an attack against God's person. An attack against the kingdom is an attack against the king. And so Christians are to go to God in prayer. Another application that we see from this failure named Herod, most of us will not literally seek the praise of being a god, right? Yet let me ask, how common is it to see men and women not give glory to God? How often do we self-focus and view the world as a solar system orbiting around our life? Is not the self-help trash that is peddled all over social media stealing God's glory? Is not the looking inside of yourself for truth and peace and goodness direct opposition to the only true God that can give those things? Can I push a little bit more? You all have masks on, so I can't hear anybody saying no. Haven't you seen the arrogance of self-seeking glory in your own co-workers, friends, and children? Even more insidious than that is the sin that indwells our own hearts. Do you well up with joy, like real happiness, when a coworker gets a promotion? Do you praise God as you see a picture of a new healthy baby across your newsfeed? Or are you immediately tunnel-visioned onto your own disappointments? Are the stories of your success much grander than they really are? Are the sins you confess much more vile, dark, and disgusting than you're willing to admit? Transparently, I struggle with this self-focus and self-glory tremendously. This week, uh, Exhibit A, as I craft my words and think of what to say for this sermon, my mind so quickly drifted to what will all of you think of me as I'm asked to preach so that you might see King Jesus in the same moment I'm looking for ways to steer your gaze to see King Eric. It is grace that I don't have people shouting to me that I'm a god, because I just might take that praise. And it will be grace that I'm not cut short in, the preaching, in this preaching and breathe my last, as I have sinfully been too focused on self and the preparation of it. So I ask you, are you a sick, self-glory addict like Herod and like me? Before we move on to Peter, let's consider the final result of Herod. He was struck by God, eaten by worms, and breathed his last. Now this is all because he would not give glory to God, and the rope of mercy he was given had run out. If you're not a Christian, I am glad you are here, and I'd like you to especially listen now. Herod's life and death are a picture for us all to see what will happen to those who do not believe in God? Look again at verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms 
and breathed his last. I should first note, Herod's death was not six-foot worms appearing out of nowhere and devouring him mid-speech. This was truly not an uh, outline or a script for the next Marvel movie, but it's actual recorded history. A non-Christian historian, Josephus, from that time, records the same events of Herod's death with remarkable consistency here in Acts chapter 12. And this death was most likely a disease that struck him and consisted of worms in his organs, literally eating him from the inside out. This here is a picture given to us of the future of any and all that do not finally give the glory to God. Our indwelling sin will eat us like worms, eating our vital organs if we do not repent. Friend, don't foolishly think that you will get the last word when it comes to God. Don't arrogantly think you're good enough to be welcomed into the presence of God. Consider the outcome of Herod and believe that God will judge every one of us based not upon our standards, but God's. So today, give glory to the sovereign God who both judges and rescues. And let us not forget, what is God's standard? It is something that no one can attain. It is perfection. You must have been perfect from your inception and stay clean and sinless until your final breath. This is perhaps the most unspoken, maybe even forgotten piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God requires perfect righteousness. And it brings us to our second truth. The gospel of Jesus rescues prisoners from death. We see it in the middle section of this chapter as the story focuses on the rescue of Peter. If Herod shows us what happens to those that oppose God, Peter shows us what God's rescue looks like. We can't meet God's standard. We will never be perfectly righteous on our own. We need rescue. We find Peter sleeping. I'm sorry, look at the middle section about Peter, starting in verse 6. We already know that this is during Passover, and verse 6 tells us it is the night before Peter would be executed. He is securely guarded by Roman soldiers, chained and awaiting his brutal death. We find Peter sleeping the night before this execution. But before he drifts into this final slumber, I imagine he must have thought back to his time with Jesus. Perhaps his thoughts drifted back specifically to his last Passover with Jesus before he went to the cross. Luke recounts this event in his first book, Luke chapter 22. Look with me there, Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. A Jesus speaking, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. During the same festival of Passover, perhaps the very exact night, Peter sat with Jesus and pledged his allegiance and loyalty to him. Look again specifically at Peter's words. Verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But we know that Peter did not go to prison that night with Jesus. 
Jesus went to prison alone and was brutally tortured. Peter did not die, but instead he denied. And though Peter was unfaithful and deserved death now more than ever, the king was faithful and died for him. And by doing so, Jesus rescued Peter from his sins and the wrath he so rightly deserved. And now all these years later, we come to Acts 12, and it's by no accident it's Passover again. And we find Peter actually in prison. And this time, he is truly ready to die for the Lord. In God's grace, Peter gets a second chance and the privilege to suffer prison and sure death like he said that he would. This is the power of the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus transformed a scared Peter that denies to now being willing to endure prison and death for his Lord. Christian, what hope that gives us that we too are not what we used to be. What hope that can give us as you see the transformative work of the gospel. And this next part is really what amazes me most. As Peter is finally ready to die for his king, here in Acts chapter 12, our Lord Jesus intervenes and rescues Peter again. How undeserving we Christians are for the mercy our God shows us. Peter did not deserve the grace he received when his Savior died for his sins on the cross. And now again, all these years later, the Sovereign Lord has arranged the events to save Peter once more. Brother and sister in Christ, we are saved once and for all by the work of Jesus on the cross. Yet, he graciously rescues us again and again. The gospel of Jesus rescues prisoners from death. Jesus, God's one and only Son, came down from heaven to die for the punishment we sinners deserve so that we might have the righteousness God rightly requires. If Herod's horrific death shows us something of the horrors of hell, then Peter's rescue gives us an illustration in dramatic form of what Jesus offers any who would believe in him. Consider these events of Peter's rescue and the spiritual truths they demonstrate. As the light of God, of God shone into Peter's jail cell, the true light of Jesus breaks into our dark world. As the angel struck Peter to wake up, the Holy Spirit strikes the unbeliever and brings spiritual awakening to a dead soul. As the chains around Peter's hands fell off, because of Jesus' righteousness, the chains of the law are removed from the believer. As the Roman guards are caused to be ineffective in stopping this jailbreak, the devil, the world, our own sin, and even death is ineffective in stopping the transformative work Jesus has begun. And as Peter listens to the commands of the angel, obeys and follows him, the true believer hears the word of God, obeys in faith, and follows Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this is the gospel. King Jesus lived a perfect life, died for your sins, rose again, and came to set you, the prisoner, free. Christians are not people who live righteously, but we are prisoners who have been made right by our sacrificial king. You are being welcomed into the family of God today through Christ if you would just admit your sin and trust in the sinless one, Jesus.
Taste and see. Experience the grace that Jesus offers you this day. Don't oppose God when he offers you rescue at the cost of his own son's life. Give glory to the sovereign God who both judges and rescues. My final point, God is sovereign over all life and death, both rescue and judgment. As we read through Acts 12, I think one could think that Herod struck the first blow and killed James. It's 1-0, Herod. But then God strikes back and frees Peter, so now it's one-to-one. And then God gets serious and strikes down Herod. 2-1, God wins. Now that would be understandable if God was human, but he is a sovereign God. The definition of sovereign is supreme ruler or possessing ultimate power. The Bible describes God this way, and a mature Christian understands God to have power over all things. And the definition of all is all. You see, James, the brother of John, being struck by the sword was not an oops. It was tragic, and it was carried out by evil men, but it did not catch God by surprise. Nor was it as if God lacked the power or foreknowledge or ability to stop it. God's will was for all these things to happen, for Peter's rescue, for Herod's death, even for James being struck by the sword. You see, God won three, zero. Some might ask now, and reasonably so, how is James dying a good thing? I could tell you that reliable ancient testimony and writings tell us that the man who had originally condemned James, brought him to court, was so persuaded by James in his testimony, his faith and allegiance to the Lord, that he was converted. It is recorded that James was beheaded and his original condemner, now turned believer by the testimony of James and the power of the Spirit, was then beheaded immediately afterwards. And while that could maybe be persuasive to see the good for James, the apostle dying, it doesn't answer the countless tragedies you and I see and experience in our own lives. Why do two single godly women pray for a husband, but our sovereign God only answers one of them with a godly husband? Why do we see a faithful couple earnestly pray for children, but never have any of their own? While an unfaithful and even abusive marriage, we see many, many children. Why are some prayers answered and some are not? Why is James struck by the sword and Peter is rescued? As I studied and prepared, I came across a theologian and pastor named Tom Schreiner. He shares a story of a woman who was diagnosed with cancer. They realized it was very serious and she will need to undergo a surgery to live. But when they cut her open to remove the cancer, they were astonished to find that the cancer is not there. There's no sign of it, a miracle, an answer to prayer. But later, she got sick, and doctors realized that from the surgery to remove the cancer, she got an infection and eventually died from it. What happened there? Can you think of stories yourself like these? 
If not, it's because I've probably put you to sleep or you just have not lived long enough. We all will see and likely experience great rescue and great pain. Danny and I have four beautiful girls, Evie, Zoe, Ty, and Shiloh. But we had another that most don't know about. After Zoe and before Ty, Danny was pregnant with our third child. How exciting it is to have your bride tell you that it worked, we're expecting. But in the first trimester, Danny realized something was wrong. Before we went to the ER, I prayed and prayed for our child's health. But after a day or two, Danny knew that we needed to go see a doctor, and so we drove to the ER and were admitted. The whole time, I was earnestly praying, hoping, asking, believing the Lord had power to save and could help. But our baby didn't make it. If there is great emotion when your wife tells you that you're expecting, there is equally great emotion when you hold her knowing your child is lost. Fast forward a few years, and we have our little baby Tai Tai, and then Shiloh. But at the first ultrasound for Shiloh, the doctor told us that she appeared to have a cleft palate. And more concerning was that the ultrasound showed missing vital organs, including an entire chamber of her heart. They said it was possible that the ultrasound didn't show it, but they really did not seem optimistic at all. And so again, I am praying for the Lord to intervene. On April 12, 2019, Shiloh was born with a left unilateral cleft lip and palate. But other than that, there are no other signs of illness or deformity. What do Danny and I do with that? One baby saved and one not. One prayer answered and one not. I'm convinced if we pass this mic around, we would would all be in tears as we would hear and share story after story of great loss and great rescue. What do you do with this fact? We'll look back at the text. Here in Acts 12, we see two faithful men, Peter and James, but one gets killed and one gets rescued. But not only that, look at verse 25. Here we see that Saul gets a shout-out. And let's remember who Saul was. Saul, the great persecutor of the Christian church. The Saul who imprisoned women and breathed threats and murder. Saul who was responsible for the first Christian martyr. Saul who opposed God, just like Herod the king, now in Acts chapter 12. Two unfaithful men. Yet one is shown mercy and saved on a road to Damascus, and one is given death by worms. This final truth, God is sovereign over all life and death, both rescue and judgment. This truth for some is the hardest to swallow because it is truly humbling. There are other places in Scripture where God speaks more to why this is true, while here in Acts chapter 12, God simply shows the plain fact that it is true. Let us not forget who we are. You and I are not God. 
If you're looking for a better way to start your days, you should wake up and say out loud, I am not God. And then go to God in prayer and ask him for your daily bread. Ask him for rescue. Christian, we are not God. We are creatures. You might be a boy or a girl, an engineer, unemployed, old or young. Last, week, last Sunday, your kids might have even told you that you're the world's greatest dad, which is a lie because I was told I was the world's greatest dad. You might be a lot of things, but at our essence and core, you and I are creatures. And that means that God is the creator. He owns you. And we creatures have no authority to hold our creator to an account. That had always been hard for me to stomach until I heard a pastor uh, say, in kind of like an old uh, country accent, he says, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) And for whatever reason, that sentence just stuck with me. And by God's power and grace, helped me see with that simple statement that God is God and I'm his creature. Let me end with one final question that I can imagine might be leveled against God. If God is merciful and loving, why doesn't he save both Herod and Saul? The late R.C. Sproul answers this question rightly when he explains, the greatest distortion in our thinking, dear friends, is thinking that God owes us mercy, that God is somehow obligated to be gracious to us. But think about that. The minute the idea comes into your head that God owes you mercy or owes you grace, let a bell go off in your brain that says, whoops, I'm confusing these concepts. Because grace, by its very definition, is voluntary. God is not required to be merciful. He reserves the right to be merciful to whom he will be merciful and to be gracious to whom he is gracious. You can plead for grace, you can beg for mercy, but you can never, ever demand it. Justice may be required, but never, ever mercy. And so chapter 12 ends with two unfaithful men receiving two very different ends. Herod the king, a man in opposition to God, received what he deserved. That is called justice. Saul the zealot, a man in opposition to God, received what he did not deserve. That is called mercy. And Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, during Passover, sinless and righteous, he deserved all praise and glory. But he took a cross of shame and died a death of agony. That is called injustice. And the injustice he took upon himself made it possible for a wicked man named Saul to receive mercy. Friend, what will you choose today? Choose today to give glory to the sovereign God who both judges and rescues. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Ask God and talk with him. Do you oppose God?
and talk with God, do you need to ask for forgiveness today? God, we thank you for being a rescuer. I pray that through your word and through these songs, uh, through your spirit, you would help us see who you truly are and we would give you glory. Amen.